the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Surf to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is Catherine Gale. She's a noted business leader, writer, speaker, and political innovation activist. And now, along with Michael Porter, the author of The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Catherine Gale was president and CEO of Gale Foods, a $250 million high-tech food manufacturing company in Wisconsin with approximately 350 employees. Prior to joining Gale Foods in 2007, Gale held a range of positions in industry and government. She holds a BA from the University of Notre Dame, an MA in education from the Catholic University of America, and an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Catherine Gale, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. James, I'm so pleased to be talking with you today. Thanks for having me. Well, Catherine Gale, we live in a turbulent moment, and polls show that many Americans don't even want family members to date, much less marry people of the opposite political party. And yet, at the same time, more than 40% of voters self-identify as independent. Now, as we get started, people are going to say, Catherine Gale, what's your political history and affiliation? Ah, yes. Well, you know, I have been all over the map in many ways, but in my adult life, I was a pretty active Democrat for, well, about 10 years. Uh, And it was from my active engagement in party politics and working for working with, you know, trying to elect Democratic candidates, that I actually eventually came to the real understanding of how broken the system is, and that there weren't candidates of either party that we were going to be able to elect, no matter how talented, who were going to be able to solve our problems given the system. So I really left party politics behind. I call myself now a politically homeless centrist independent and the politically homeless part really resonates with a lot of people which makes sense because when we think about our large and diverse country and you know everybody's individual situation the complex problems we face the idea that we only have two choices intuitively seems mismatched so to your readers uh, to your listeners I would say who uh, resonate with this politically homeless label I I want to say you are not alone, and let's talk. (laughs) You know, many Americans think the political system is broken because from the point of view of we the people, it's not working. Yet a number of us, I'm a part of this group, look at D.C., and we don't see a swamp. We see a system. What is the system you see? Who is it serving? And what's really going on back there? I couldn't agree more with you, Jim. It is a system. And to take this Washington is broken idea further, what I like to say is, you know, Washington, D.C. isn't broken. It's actually doing precisely what it's been designed to do. The reason it looks broken to us 
is because we've been assuming that Washington, D.C. was somehow designed to serve the voters, the public interest, you know, those of us who should be the customers. But once we look at it deeply, uh, we see, as you have seen, that the system is working fabulously well for the people it was designed for, which is the parties and all their industry allies, everybody in the business of elections and politics and the game of it. And they're doing just as well as ever, even as the country is ne has never been more dissatisfied with the results. So point in summary is that this, the system is doing great for those it was designed to serve. But that brings up the question of, hey, how come it wasn't designed for citizens in the public interest? And much more importantly, what could we do then to change the design so it does put the needs and desires of real people and real problems first? Well, the way that you and Michael Porter come at this is a very interesting one in your important new book, The Politics Industry. You argue that politics is an industry and should be thought of it in that way, and you've applied Michael Porter's five forces framework to show how it might be made more competitive. Could you please briefly describe the five forces framework and how you think they should be applied to politics? Yes, uh, my background is in business. And when I originally developed the five forces in this whole political industry theory, it was when I was still running a, you know, this high tech food manufacturing company in Wisconsin. So the five forces is the most commonly used framework where business people use the framework to look at the industry that they're in and figure out what's going on in that industry. So they don't just look at what they think their company should do. They look at what everybody else is doing, including the suppliers that provide you know, their inputs, their channels of distribution, their customers. They look at how many new competitors might come in to fight them for their customers or drive their prices down. And they look at people who might try to serve their customers in other ways. And this really helps sort of, uh, it talks about really where the power is in an industry and where the value is and who gets the value in that industry. So in a health, in healthy competition, and you know, let's just, you know, here we are in America, the land of free enterprise, which while it has its problems, it has certainly delivered enormous uh, economic opportunity in many ways, not fully equally, but in many ways. And so we look at, you know, sort of the market of politics and say, who has, who can capture the value in there? And what we find is that the system in the politics industry is full of unhealthy competition and the value virtually none of the value in the industry ends up getting delivered to the customer, which is to say the citizens and the public interest. The value in that industry goes to the companies, the Republicans, the Democrats, the lobbyists, the media, goes to special interests, goes and goes a little bit of value goes to party primary voters but no real value gets delivered to the customer. And the other thing that we see when we look at it as an industry is even though the most, who should be the most important customers of 
the politics industry in a democracy should be the citizens. And even though they get no value from it, what's also interesting is they never get any new choices. So in any other industry, if the customers were very dissatisfied and weren't getting any value, but the industry had a lot of money in it and was doing great, an entrepreneur would see it as a phenomenal business opportunity and would set up shop and offer a new choice, a new product, so that those dissatisfied customers could have a different choice. But that never happens in politics because it turns out that in politics, the two sides actually work super well together in one particular way, and that is to rig the rules of the game to protect themselves jointly from new competition. And that is why we don't get results from politics for the public, and there's no accountability, because there's nothing we can do to them. We can't choose someone else, and there's no accountability for not getting those results. So until we figure out how to change it so they're incented to deliver results and we can hold them accountable if they don't deliver them, we're going to keep getting what we get. And the good news is, and of course we, this whole purpose of our book, is to talk about what it will take to change that dysfunctional system. Well, let's go back to history for a minute as we think about the future. If you go back to the 1860 election, which had a new party, the Republican Party, that came in on a plurality vote far under a majority. You have 1912, where the parties, Republicans and Democrats, were forced to adjust to respond to the Bull Moose Party as well as the Socialist Party that got a record vote. You have 1936, where until the year before Huey Long was killed, there was a real possibility of a third party bid uh, that could have been a strong one. Uh, 1948, when the a third party came out, the Dixiecrats uh, breaking away, challenging the Democrats, saw the South. 1968, uh, where money came in from the outside, a very big amount of money that broke open the Democratic establishment and got Eugene McCarthy in, followed by a third party bid by George Wallace that came with the Democratic Party in a different direction. Then, of course, 1992 with Ross Perot. I, I mention these because I wonder uh, what has happened that third parties are no longer able to credibly pop up except for these rather uh, generally, frankly, not very credible offerings of billionaires of themselves? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a really important question. And here's the, here's the very important piece of the answer, which is that some of the structural barriers to new parties, or just call them new competition, even an independent, that isn't supposedly a whole new party, uh, have existed for a long period of time. But people, every once in a while, broke through in the past. The reason we don't see that anymore and people will recognize this from their own, you know, careers, uh, is that the parties and their industry allies, it's what we call the political industrial complex, has basically gotten better at figuring out how to act within this system to get more value for themselves and to create higher barriers to these new entrants. And they've learned to collaborate even more on 
the rules. So I'm going to give you an example. So a, I can't remember the exact date right now, but the, the and you may know because you're such a great historian. So the presidential debates used to be run by the League of Women Voters, and they were not in bed with either side. And this was a service to the public to put on these presidential debates. And eventually, the parties realized, huh, we don't like this very much because we don't have enough control over it. And if there were, for example, a third party or there's a, another Ross Perot, then we would not be able to prevent them necessarily from being on the debate stage. And so let's get rid of the League of Women Voters and let's form our own supposed not-for-profit organization, but we'll just have you know, this many Democrats and this an equal number of Democrats, equal number of Republicans, and we will collude together to make sure nobody else can ever get on that debate stage. And indeed, that's what they do uh, effectively. And so this has happened in rule after rule where there's been collusion behind the scenes. I would call it almost antitrust-like behavior, but of course ever so conveniently antitrust regulation turns out not to apply to the pol politics industry. Uh, so they get better and better at what they do. And the barriers to entry are now so high that nobody can get in. Interestingly, though, and we'll, we'll get to this, I'm sure, the biggest barrier to entry is a systems structural barrier. It's not, for example, money. And we see that because money hasn't made some of these billionaires successful. So there's something else that's the barrier, and we need to lower that barrier, not necessarily because someone else is the savior, because there certainly are no saviors coming, but because if you don't have the threat of new competition, you don't have to do your job, and you can worry about other things. So without the threat of new competition, neither side has to deliver results to the public interest. So uh, we've got to get this barrier issue figured out and allow free entry. And it's all the more complicated because one of the ways that could probably uh, allow for much more independent and third party presence, uh, one of the barriers is the campaign finance laws that give effective support to the parties and they also limit individual donations, even if they're transparent in terms of being legal. So you can't have situations, the, part, the situations I mentioned in the past, a number of them had very heavy, heavy financing. In 68, McCarthy got massively financed by half a dozen people. Otherwise, he could never have stood in New Hampshire against Lyndon Johnson. And of course, George Wallace on the other side, pioneered direct mail, got millions of small donations. And these things have been made much more difficult particularly the McCarthy situation. How do we think about that? Yeah, uh, so it's very interesting. It is true that right now the money constitutes a huge barrier to entry, either because you can't get enough as a independent or third-party candidate, um, or because you don't have the same ability to use the money because it has to go, you know, through independent expenditures. But, but let me draw attention away for a moment from the money because I actually think that all this focus on money and politics serves as a distraction from where 
things over which we have power. So what I mean by that, James, is in this whole dysfunctional system, if we think of it as kind of a chicken and an egg or just a a circle of dysfunction, there are things that are problems that we can't change or can't change now. So to focus on them might explain some things that go wrong, but if that explanation doesn't lead to something actionable, and by that I don't mean constitutional amendments because they sort of they don't go in my actionable category because we can't we can't pass them. Um, so I mean really actionable, realistically actionable, then then I don't focus on it. So in this circle of dysfunction, this doom loop, we find that the structural barrier of how we vote is the greatest problem with new entrants, which is to say, if you vote for a new entry other than the Democrat and the Republican, then that new, let's call it a third party, will be either, in most cases, a wasted vote, you know, as in James, do not vote for that libertarian in 2016 because Gary Johnson is going to take votes away from Trump and you're going to waste your vote or worse, you're going to spoil the election for Trump and you'll inadvertently help elect Hillary. And then on the other side, if, if someone wanted to vote on the left, let's say you did, James, do not vote for Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, because you're just going to waste your vote or spoil the election for Hillary Clinton. So don't do that. And so any new competitor is almost at best a wasted vote or a spoiler. We saw this really powerfully. Howard Schultz, uh, you may recall, and some of your listeners will recall, the you know former CEO and founder of Starbucks considered entering the presidential race for 2020 as an independent. And this was in the spring of 2019. And he was, the Democrats really attacked him viciously because he was more associated with Democrats in his path. And Democrats believed that he would draw enough votes away from the eventual Democratic nominee to essentially hand the election to Donald Trump. And make you know no bones about it, if the Republicans had seen a credible, well-financed challenger like a Howard Schultz on the right, they would have hounded that person out of the race as well. That is the biggest barrier to entry, and that's one that even money cannot overcome. So we have to have essentially a chance for startups to get in without ruining you know, the race for the two uh, behemoths, and that, that we get through changing structural rules. And what's amazing is, you know how I said constitutional amendments, we can't get those done? What's really amazing is that in my work, what I have come to really, not just, what I've come to know as the most powerful thing that we must do as a country also, thank goodness, happens to be relatively achievable. I didn't say it's easy, but it's relatively achievable. That's amazing. I didn't expect to find it. If I had found something harder, I'd still be doing this work as, you know, I know you would be very active in this area, but um, it's amazing how powerful the answer is and how relatively achievable it is. Well, Catherine Gale, let's talk about your advocacy for primaries with a single nonpartisan ballot. Could you tell us how that would work and why you think that will improve primaries? Right. So let me say all of our work 
is focused on results in Congress's legislative, you know, agenda. We want Congress to deliver results. So we're not focused on let's change who wins. We're focused on let's change what whoever wins does. And let's make what they do focused on solving problems for, you know, the citizens and the public interest. So with that backdrop, I will say we have two reasons why we don't currently solve problems that way in Congress. And one is the party primary, because it pushes people on the left far to the left, and it pushes people on the right far to the right. And when they get to Washington, D.C., they cannot afford to, to reach a bipartisan consensus on a complex problem because they don't believe, and they're usually right, that they will be able to win their low turnout, highly ideological primary again. So that is, it just basically structurally says, if you do your job the way we need you to do your job as the, as the country, you will lose your job because your party primary voters will turn you out. And that's a crazy design. No one would design their organization that way. So we don't get results. And then the second problem we have is there's no accountability because, as I've been saying, there's no new competition, and that relates to what we do in the general election. So coming back to your question, how do we want to change the party primary? Well, let's just get rid of it, okay? It's totally broken. And instead, let's have one single ballot, nonpartisan primary. Voters will go in to vote on primary day, and they don't vote in the Democrat primary or the Republican primary. Now there's just one primary. Everybody running is on the same ballot. Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Greens. They pick their favorite, polls close. The top five finishers will automatically advance to the general election. So now instead of a binary zero-sum competition, you know, between one Democrat and one Republican, often cases we already know who's going to win because in most cases the primary winner is guaranteed to win the general. Point being, now instead of that, practically useless debate, we have a dynamic competition of candidates and of ideas between these five, even if those five consist of three Republicans and two Democrats, or two Republicans, two Democrats, and, a, and an independent. Then on, uh, and, and what happens by doing this is that we eliminate the single greatest barrier to getting results in Washington, D.C., which is the threat of losing your primary. I talk about the party primary in its current format as being creating really a proverbial eye of the needle, which is so small that no problem-solving politician can ever pass through that eye of the needle. We eliminate that problem. Now they know that if they pass this bipartisan you know, solution to the complex problem, that they will live to fight another day, as in they will be in the top five and they will appear on the general election ballot when they can make their case to the broader electorate. And w along with the change we'll talk about, sure, I'm sure, in a moment, in the general, they'll be able to win. We really need to connect the incentive to win with the need to deliver results instead of how it's currently set up, which is you actually are more likely to win with gridlock and demonizing the other side. Well, let me be devil's advocate for a moment and present a couple of the alternative views for you to dispatch rapidly, as I'm sure you will. 
Uh, one is, <laughs> for example, in Louisiana, uh, where this approach was taken beginning in the 1970s, I think, it was done with the goal, it was presented as a good government nonpartisan thing, but it was really intended to protect the majority party that was then declining. And it, it helped them save a lot of resources in their races by knocking out what was then uh, a rising uh, second party. And then when it flipped over time, now it serves the incumbents they feel as well, even though now it's the opposite party. In California, where we have an open primary system, there was an immediate effect of dislodging some long-term incumbents who are basically living off these greatly shrunken partisan electorates. But once the changes have happened, the people who go to Sacramento or Washington are still walking right into the same party system, and people don't see that much change as a result. How would you respond to these kinds of questions? Yes, I would say that sometimes when we make well-intended changes, uh, we may drown you know, with only two inches above our heads, but we're just as dead as if we had two feet above our heads. So doing something that gets us in the right direction but isn't enough to have us, you know, to keep our heads fully above the water is just not good enough. I don't know if that's a really good analogy, but my point is we have to actually fix the problem enough so we don't sort of make it a little bit better, but no actual results get better. Because that's not what we're looking for. So the problem in the case, for example, of California and Louisiana is that it's really designed to allow two to move forward. Two, so in California specifically, let's say, you know, you have a party primary, everybody's on the same ballot, and then people vote, and the top two vote-getters advance to the general election. And that's simply not enough new competition because often it's just one Republican and one Democrat, or in some cases, and this is not bad, you could have two Republicans, which if it's a super red district could be more competitive than otherwise, but two is not enough. That's the bottom line. It's not enough. It's just reinforced. It still sticks with the duopoly close enough that it doesn't incent them to deliver results. So given your view of the duopoly, and you make the strong argument that the number ought to be not two for this good reason ought to be five. How do you get to five as a practical matter, given the system that you explained so well, being so resistant to it and able to cloak their real interests sometimes in other arguments? Oh, meaning how would we get this enacted? Yes. Oh, yeah. Perfect question. Because, again, as a former business person, I am not interested in a theoretical book. I am interested... Uh, you know, in getting this done. And so here's the, here's the real, really great thing. Article one of the Constitution gives the power over the rules of congressional elections to each state individually in our, you know, federalist uh, system. And so each state can change these rules individually. You know how uh, some of your listeners will recognize when we're watching presidential elections and we're like, wait, how come the rules are so different from state to state? That's because everybody makes them, you know, individually. And so we can use that to our benefit here. 
And in half the states, the, the power to change these rules actually can be directly with the citizens. So you won't even need the politicians to agree, which is to say that in half the states, you can run a referendum or a citizen's initiative. The citizens, anyone listening to this call today could say, I'm going to make this happen in my state. They form a you know group and they collect enough signatures to put the measure, to put the question on the ballot, essentially what we call this reform is final side voting. So it would be vote yes for final side voting or vote no for final side voting. And if enough citizens vote yes, then now you have final side voting, even if none of the politicians agreed with you. Do you have any states um, and, doing that now, Catherine, or moving toward that? Or what do you see happening? Yeah, it's super exciting. Actually, three states will be voting on a close cousin of final five voting. It's final four voting. So they'll have four top finishers advanced to the general election, which I don't believe is optimal, but, um, but it was what we used to talk about you know, a little while ago. So it's so, so amazing. They'll have, final, they'll have top four primaries and ranked choice voting in the general elections, and you need to do both of these reforms together. Alaska will vote on that. Arkansas will vote on it, and North Dakota will vote on it. Additionally, in the other you know, half of the states, you have to have the legislature make a change. And I founded, back in 2017, a bipartisan, cross-partisan organization to push for the legislative, our, our legislature in our state capitol and our governor to change the rules for Congress. And we really are gaining a lot of bipartisan momentum on there. It certainly takes longer in a legislative state, but we're on the right track. So I predict, James, that final five voting is going to supplant term limits, gerrymandering reform, campaign finance reform in the eyes of those people without a partisan axe to grind within the next 18 to 24 months. And this so we all we'll going understand the significance of what you're saying. You are based in Wisconsin, which is not only a competitive state in recent years, but it has a long, long storied history of political reform going back more than a century. Exactly right. We were one of the leaders in the last, you know, citizens led reform movement, the progressive era, which is actually um, in part where party primaries came from. So sometimes, you know, well-intentioned uh, efforts have some unintended consequences, no question. Um, and But I constantly say to people in Wisconsin, yes, we need to once again be the leaders. Can I share with you, James, a quote from uh, Fighting Bob LaFollette? Please, he's a favorite. Yes. From Wisconsin. Okay, so Fighting Bob LaFollette, let's see if I can remember this, uh, do this from memory, said in that progressive time, America is not made, but is in the making. There is an unending struggle to make and keep government representative. Men must be aggressive for that which is right if government is to be saved from those who are aggressive for what is wrong. Do you know where and the that, reference is to that wonderful quote, Catherine Gale? So uh, others know, can pick it up. How, do you know where that comes from so that myself and other listeners could locate it? 
or find it. No, it's but I can. I, I will send it to you. I just don't know off the top of my head, but I'll. I will find it out because I have footnoted it in my book. Excellent. <laughs> so I'll look it up and I'll send it to you. Actually, you know what? It's in. I actually have it in my acknowledgments. But in any case, I'll send it over to you, James, and then you if can you send it, uh, and then we'll get it up. Yeah, with the announcement of your outstanding podcast here so everybody can see it let's move briefly and quickly to some other quick questions uh, one is you're a business person you identify that as your primary vocation as you speak as well as a political reformer political innovator uh, people seem to have really mixed views about business people in politics directly that is they, some people think gosh we just made politics like a business that'll fix it all and others say, you know what, we've never had in our history a really top-level business person who has done really important stuff in politics. I mean, the best business people we've had were probably Herbert Hoover, who was a tremendous success, and to a lesser extent, but also successful, Jimmy Carter. How, uh, I'm leaving out the current situation, it's, it's not relevant, mm -hmm. the controversies over our current uh, recent presidents. How do you think about that? What would you say? Yeah, I, I think sometimes when we talk about, you know, relative to my work, that we're using these business tools to understand politics, that there is an assumption that maybe I think that government should be run like a business. And I'm going to put myself squarely on the side of those to say, who say government is not a business and it should not be run like a business. And that what and and I mean that, which is to say, you know, government needs to do things that cannot be done by private enterprise. And although, of course, it must be efficient and effective, the job of government is fundamentally different than running a business. What I focus on in my work is the business of the political game. So not the actual governing itself and the agencies, but the game of running and winning in office and then the game of legislating. And that is where I say it's helpful to look at this game of politics, this competition in politics, using a lens of competition in private industry. It's not the only valid way to look at it. It's just a super helpful way to understand why it doesn't work for the customers. And most importantly, to understand what we need to fix to align it with what the customers need. Um, and that's, now as to whether business people would be good in politics, it, meaning good running the government, I actually think they could be very good at it. Um, but what I, but I don't so much need to ask myself that question. I need to ask myself, is the playing field such that if a business person wants to make their case to the public, and they're not a Democrat or a Republican, they want to make their case, can they make their case? And if the public buys it, will they have a chance to prove if they're good or not? And if they're not good, will the public have another choice as soon as possible to you know, uh, get someone better? And that way, over time, we'll find out if business people are good or not. But right now, there's no chance to you know, even know, because whether you're in business or a career politician, if you go in to the existing system, the system will spit out the same kind of results we get no matter how well-intentioned or no matter the background of the candidate. <laughs> Very well said. Uh, Catherine Gale, let's ask a few quick questions about your work and leadership and life. As a political reformer, you're an educator. What do you seek to impart to young people in their 20s 
as they look ahead and prepare for the future in this great time of uncertainty. Yeah, so I love when people are engaged on policy and when people say, I want something different, even if what they want is different than what I want, because in a democracy, the citizens have to care and be involved and let their preferences be known and debate. However, what I want to educate and say to young people is you can care all you want about these issues, but you have to also care about the system into which you're feeding your preferences. Or you will spend all your time on the issues and then be surprised when nothing comes out the other end of the system that's how you want it or how anyone wants it. And these days, sort of not much comes out of the end of the system. But uh, So I talk about almost tithing to democracy, which is, yes, have your issues, and then spend, and then also spend 10% of your time making sure that the rules of the game allow an opportunity for efficiency and effectiveness in, in legislating. Um, I think that so many people care about issues, just assume that the political system and these young people assume that the political system was all set up in the Constitution and that it's immutable and it's just the way it is and it will be that way. So they think that the gas pedal they have to push on is pressure for issues and their preferred solutions. And what I want to say is actually it doesn't have to be this way. It was not meant to be designed this way and that we can change it. So let's spend some time on that. And I would personally tell them, I can't wait for the day when the system works well enough and fairly enough and productively enough that I can go back to caring about other policy issues. But for the moment, there's nothing more important than getting a nonpartisan, efficient, effective, dynamically competitive system to put in our ideas and deliver out solutions. And I would expect that you would give a gentle admonition in your very skillful way, particularly to millennials and Gen Z, that Twitter time may not get full credit as political involvement. Is that a fair surmise? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yes, we should all be saying that, not just to Gen Z and millennials, but to you know any one of us who's in politics, because no matter what age we are, and I'm certainly not one of those generations, um, if we're doing political things, we end up on Twitter too. And we definitely confuse weighing in on social media with action. And it is not the same thing. So uh, I think that someone standing outside, um, you know, a busy, a busy shopping district and collecting signatures for nonpartisan political innovation like final five voting, which is what we call the package of reforms that I, you know, really propose in this book, and I hope people will read it. Someone standing outside that busy shopping mall and collecting signatures for final five voting, let's say one super liberal person next to one super conservative person, knowing that they hope for different policy outcomes, but that they want our democracy to actually work as intended, that's the valuable action. And two hours, you know, holding the petitions for the signatures will 
do exponentially, you know, more to deliver change than 10 or 100 times that amount of time on social media. Now, Catherine Gale, oh, do feel free. Yes. Do feel free to te- you know to sort of. I want everybody to feel free to post about my book on social media, <laughs> um, and spread the word that way. If I Absolutely. can, is that, hypocr- an, is that hypocritical? <laughs> no, it's an important clarification. And uh, let's take a look back. You are at a, a very strong point in your own work and career. You've accomplished many things, and there's a long way to go. If you could do so today, what would you tell the 20-year-old Catherine Gale? Oh my goodness. I would say read the book, The Defining Decade. I don't know if it existed then, but that is the book that makes the point. Do not kid yourselves. The 20s are super important. It is not a time to just sort of enjoy yourself. You are preparing for the trajectory of your life. That's what they call the defining decade. And if you you know, don't use this time wisely when it seems that you have all the time in the world ahead of you, you will later feel like you're playing a bit of catch up. And I, I buy this book and I give it to all of my 20 something nieces and nephews and, and friends. It's really important that for our personal life and our careers, but I'll just say for your own, you know, satisfaction and development that you think hard about how you're spending your time in 20s. It doesn't mean don't have fun, but don't think that you won't notice at 32 that, you know, a decade went by and you didn't, you know, you're not as far ahead in things that matter to you as you might want to be. Do you recall who the author is? We definitely will add that to the show notes as well. I'm, oh, who the author is of The Defining yes. Decade? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Let me... You know, I keep a bunch of copies on my desk. That's okay. I'll tell you what, if I could ask a favor, Catherine, if you would send me that information along with that LaFollette quote, we'll get them both up on the site so people can yes, quickly and, get Yes, and the author is actually Meg J. Okay. We'll put that up. And then a uh, few final quick questions. Are there significant matters relating to leadership about which you have changed your mind over time? I have changed my mind about a lot of things. So, and, and that's a strength. Let me, and, and this would certainly not be the only one, but I want to follow up on just that visceral reaction to it. It is a strength as a leader to not be afraid to say, I was wrong, and here is a new and better way. And I think, well, I know that when I was younger, the words, I was wrong, were hard to come up with. So I, I, the sooner that we can all realize that, you know, the faster we can say we were, we were wrong, if we, indeed we were, the faster we can get on to the business of, you know, now investing in what we believe is the right thing to do. And since we're going to make so many mistakes over our lives, let's just move past them as fast as possible. And that works both as a leader and uh, I'll call it even as a follower. And we all have roles in both. So we need to say I was wrong. 
Well, as a person who's constantly challenging herself and others in your leadership role, have you learned anything that's demonstrably improved your life, your leadership, your work in the past five years? Yes. What would be a specific thing that you could share? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know the uh, the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out? Yes. So there's a a man, Patrick McGinnis, who actually coined that term in an essay he wrote when he was at Harvard Business School. I don't know, you know, how many, a decade or more ago. And what is unknown, though, or far less well-known, is that at the same time he coined a term called FOBO, fear of a better option. And this... I just read it. His book is amazing. It's called FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. But in there, he talks about FOBO. And when I learned about that, it really uh, lit up for me something I'd sort of understood, but now in just this powerful way, that when you're constantly trying to optimize, and in this age of, you know, being able to optimize online and everything, a lot of times you get caught up in optimization and waiting for the better option and figuring out the best option that you effectively choose nothing. And then, you know, that in and of itself is a choice. And he has a line in there about fear of a better option, basically ending up with mind clutter. And what I try to do, and this goes into what I was saying before, like don't waste your twenties. I am trying to go so fast right now, James, in, evaluation and choosing and powerfully choosing and going all in and then I say if it wasn't the right thing I say I was wrong now I do this judiciously I'm not just impulsive over you know ill-conceived ideas but I recognize now I don't have the time to just you know think about things forever until I fully played the whole chess game out till the end so read FOMO get rid of you know both FOMO and FOBO and you will be more effective, more powerful, and happier. And indeed, it's made a big difference just in the short time since I read it. Another great ad for the show notes. Thank you, Catherine Gale. And let's ask you, Claire Booth Luce in the mid-20th century, a playwright and political activist, famously instructed President Kennedy that everyone, including presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in just a single sentence. What would you like your single sentence to be? Oh, hmm. You know, I certainly have never thought of it. I would say right now my point would be I want a, I want a sentence about America. I want a sentence, you mean not related to me, like sentences that I care about right now are, are related to whether this country, this shining city on a hill endures and and continues the promise of democracy, you know, for the world or not. But so as not to be too much a politician and, you know, sort of answer what I wanted to answer instead of what you asked me, I will try to answer that. I, here's what I think. I want my single line to just say she cared. Very good one. Well, Catherine Gale, that's a fitting ending. How can listeners best follow and connect with you in social media? <laughs> Thanks for asking. So my Twitter uh, is at Catherine Gale, and that's K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-G-E-H-L. 
And most importantly, and also on LinkedIn, feel free to link to me there. Most importantly, please, if a listener would like to make this change, it can really start with one person. It's the real deal. It is doable. Come to my website, which is political-innovation.org, and basically, you know, put your information in. It's not quite up yet. It'll be up in the next 10 days. And then we can connect and with my team, and we can help you get started. We'll connect you with a campaign in your state, or we'll help you start one, or we'll help you be a pol- political philanthropist if that's what, how you would like to engage. We'd love to hear from you. Well, thank you, Catherine Gale. It's been a delight to have you with us, and thank you for your service, your leadership, and your tremendous new book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Thank you, James. Delight is the right word. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics, and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok, and connect via our website, Serve to Lead. Until next time, Take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our nation, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.